there's you know research that shows that for youth if they have one reliable adult that they feel is supportive and will you know love them unconditionally just one in their life doesn't have to be a parent could be a relative it could be a teacher counselor whatever but that can make the difference between which road they go down and so when you think about it if if that one youth doesn't have that one connection and they veer off in this direction what you're describing is it's just a snowball effect they're in the system psychologically they internalize that that identity of well i'm bad and messed up yep that identity is reinforced within incarceration where they're grouped together with other individuals who have you know probably come from similar experiences um and there isn't there isn't really effective reform happening in an environment where we're locking people up keeping them involved in that revolving door of the system imagining that punishment is going to change behavior which if you're anyone out there is a parent you can probably identify that punishment could can you know be helpful at times for safety yeah. but it does not change behavior and then you see people yeah in in as adults you know it's just years of accumulated trauma limited rights um and then once they're released from an incarcerated environment in Colorado 48% of people who get released from prison will reoffend and return to prison within 3 years. You are listening to the ultimate biohack for women. A movement of women who know what they want and go get it. You know the answers lie within. Reach in and grab hold. This is a movement. A movement of women who tune in and turn themselves on. Now you're biohacking the woman's way. Integrating the art and science of hacking your biology like a woman. Tap your magic, conjure your yes, upgrade, elevate, maximize your potential. I'm Dr. Brandy Victory, and this is a movement, a movement that is sure to hack your soul. All right. So excited. All right, ladies, welcome to the ultimate biohack for women. I am so thrilled to share with you uh, a wonderful friend of mine beyond anything else, but she's just an incredible woman in the world. Her name is Kathleen McGoey, and she's the executive director of Longmont Community Justice Partnership. She's also got a master's in peace and conflict studies from the University of Innsbruck, Austria, and a bachelor's from the Notre Dame. So she's very very intelligent. But beyond that, she's got this um, wonderful way of being embodied with her offering. And, uh, you know, I, Kathleen, I talk to my audience a lot about embodiment practices and sensual dance and yoga and breath work and all these things. So we can really begin to own what it is that we, uh, that we want to bring forth into the world, like our pur most purposeful life path. And I just really appreciate it about you that you're so clear with your life path. You're so clear about who you are on this planet and your offering. And uh, it's, it's just a wonderful thing and so refreshing to be in your field when I get to be and um, be a part of your truth, your authenticity, the, the, um, the way that you bring softness 
to the static. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. I, I really appreciate all that you wove into that and feel very seen by you. So thanks for the invitation to participate and, and hopefully share more with the women that you're connected with far and wide. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. You know, the, the ultimate biohack for women is, um, I believe in my opinion is our ability to know our truth and know our authenticity and to know what our, our purpose is and to be connected to that greater part of ourselves or God or spirit or our inner wisdom, whatever you want to call it. Um, I believe without that, you can hack yourself with all the light therapy and supplements all day long. And you really have nothing, nothing, uh, until you do this other greater part and, uh, and you, you just, you own it. So, you know, I would love to hear a little bit about if you could just like enlighten our listeners a little bit to what restorative justice is. It's a big topic and, um, yeah, yeah. I would just like people to know more about that. That'd be great. Yeah. Happy to restorative justice is understood generally as an alternative to the criminal justice system with an emphasis on meeting the needs and trying to repair the harms caused to the victim or harm parties to the greatest degree possible. So what that looks like in the organization that I direct here in Longmont, Colorado, um, is it's, we operate in partnership with police. Uh, which is not the most common form of restorative justice. Right now, fortunately, restorative justice is growing nationwide and most models are incorporated within district attorney's offices and schools. So I'll just make the comment now that our model is quite different and I'm hopeful that it will not be so uncommon as we move forward because it also provides one aspect of a solution to what we're hoping to see differently in terms of how law enforcement interacts with community, which of course is a growing need from many communities throughout the country right now. So what it looks like uh, in here in Longmont is our Longmont Police Department, when they respond to a call for service and they make contact with an offender and a victim, they are looking for two main criteria. Is the offender taking responsibility for their actions? And is the victim okay with the case going an alternate route and not going to court? Mm. If those two criteria are met, the officer can use their discretion in the moment to refer the case directly to restorative justice instead of writing a ticket or making an arrest. So that means that our cases never touch the criminal justice system. They don't have to go to court. They don't have to talk to a lawyer. They don't go before a judge. No criminal charges are filed. The offenders that are eligible for our programming can be as young as 10 years old, up to any age. Um, that's another component that makes our program pretty exceptional because often in this country, we think that youth are uh, deserving of second chances and diversion, but there's this notion that adults should know better. Mm. Um, based on my experience in this work, adults are, are great candidates for restorative justice, especially because they have often acted out of desperation. They're, you know, in a situation where they've lost their job or they're going through a divorce or 
going through some sort of mental health challenge or all of those things. Um, and so I, I really love and appreciate that we can work with adults in our program. All offense types are eligible uh, misdemeanor and felony level offenses with the exception of traffic as in driving traffic or um, sex assault, domestic violence or anything that carries a mandatory sentence. And to, to give you the sort of brief synopsis of what happens is the referral comes to our staff. Our staff conducts an intake call with each offender and victim to make sure that they're willing to voluntarily participate. From there, our staff matches the case with two volunteer facilitators those facilitators will meet with each offender and victim separately. And at that point, we start using the term responsible person instead of offender and harm party instead of victim, because we acknowledge that those experiences are not binary. Most people who have caused harm have also been harmed. True. And those who have been harmed will cause harm as well. So we want to just focus on this particular incident. And so those facilitators will meet with each party and then bring those parties together with their support people into a meeting that we call a community group conference. So that involves the involved parties responsible and harmed, their support people, the referring police officer participates and two volunteer community members who are there to represent the broader community. And that group dialogue focuses on what happened, who was affected and how, and what can be done to repair the harms to the greatest degree possible. That repair takes shape in the form of a contract that the responsible person commits to that usually has about three to five specific actions that they will take to make things right with the harm party, with their family, with the community. The contract has a deadline. So if they complete everything by that given deadline, which is usually around three months out, they won't have any criminal charge on their record and the case is closed. Wow. If the responsible person doesn't complete their contract or they reoffend while under contract, that's grounds for us to invalidate the contract and we refer the case back to the officer to go through the conventional system. Um, so to give you just some quick numbers, we work with around 100 cases each year. Three quarters of those involve youth, so it's still a little bit more geared towards youth, even though we're always excited about working with adults. We have a 90 to 95 percent completion rate of responsible parties who complete their contracts. And we have a 100% satisfaction rate reported by victims and harm parties who participate who state that the responsible person was held accountable for their actions. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, that's, you know, most, most people inquire about reoffense rates. And we also, um, we've just conducted a study that shows that uh, um, analysis of 2,500 responsible parties who completed our program over 13 years only have a 3.5 recidivism rate, or that's that's the same as reoffense. Ah. So that's also a huge indicator of success, but equally, if not more uh, important in the world of restorative justice is that indicator that those who experienced harm 
felt that their needs were met and that they had a voice in the justice experience. Wow. That's so beautiful. Oh my gosh. You know, it's interesting. I, I have to say, I watch this show every once in a while because sometimes I just want to be, I want to understand what's happening in the world in a different, I live in a big bubble, as you know, (laughs) I live in a bubble. And sometimes I'm curious about what makes people do the things that they do. And so there's this movie, this um, documentary on Netflix called I am a killer. And I saw that there was an, a, a, like a, a preview for it. And it was a woman. And I was like, a woman, like, I was like, what is that? Who does that? You know? So I had to watch it and I like can only watch one episode every so often because it's like a lot to take on. But what I'm, I'm kind of noticing as a theme is they've been violated or hurt as a child and they got themselves in a bad situation that it wasn't like they're, they're a dark, evil being. They just got themselves in a bad situation. And, and then they go to prison and there's not really reform there for them. And I'm just like, wow, you know, if their childhood had been different, if they had some kind of reform system put in place, if there, there were so many things that could be changed with the system, they could maybe have a life again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you're offering that to people. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you know, research that shows that for youth, if they have one reliable adult that they feel is supportive and will, you know, love them unconditionally, just one in their life doesn't have to be a parent, could be a relative, it could be a teacher, counselor, whatever, but that can make the difference between which road they go down. And so when you think about it, if, if that one youth doesn't have that one connection and they veer off in this direction, what you're describing is it's just a snowball effect. They're in the system. Psychologically, they internalize that, that identity of, well, I'm bad and messed up. Yep. That identity is reinforced within incarceration where they're grouped together with other individuals who have, you know, probably come from similar experiences. Um, And there isn't, there isn't really effective reform happening in an environment where we're locking people up, keeping them involved in that revolving door of the system, imagining that punishment is going to change behavior, which if you're anyone out there is a parent, you can probably identify that punishment could, can you know be helpful at times for safety, yeah. but it does not change behavior. And then you see people, yeah, in, in, in as adults, you know, it's just years of accumulated trauma, limited rights, um, and then once they're released from an incarcerated environment in Colorado, forty-eight percent of people who get released from prison will reoffend and return to prison within three years. Oh no, that's terrible. And we spend millions of dollars on this system that we know fails. Like in what other industry do we invest that much money on a failing product? Wow. Not to mention the brilliance and the creativity and the capacity of all those individuals that we're losing because we don't let them participate 
in community. We don't allow them to vote once they're a convicted felon. We don't mm. allow them to participate in the economy. So there's, I mean, the repercussions of our criminal justice systems failures um, are infinite, especially for those of us who believe, you know, in human potential, in our capacity to heal, mm. in our ability to transform our own lives. Thank you. And, you know, some of us need some support. All of us need some support. All at times of us. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah. And so is your vision, do you feel like, like as, as the, the, as this evolves, cause I know you're going out in different directions as all of this evolves. Do you feel like the more it evolves and the more outreach you can have that the more lives it will touch, I mean, I'm guessing the more lives it will touch and which will help turn people around before they get in too bad of a trouble. So you maybe, yeah. Is that the vision? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm so, you know, systemically, definitely like we want to keep people out of that punitive system from the beginning. And then some of the, the pieces of this that we can't even measure are things that I've heard anecdotally, for example, uh, a therapist in Longmont reached out to me a few years ago. I, I just got connected to them through some other people. And he said that he had worked with hundreds of youth and their parents in Longmont. And he had observed that those families that had gone through restorative justice came away with more tools to have hard conversations and restore respecting and trustful, uh, respectful and trusting relationships in the household as a result. So yeah, when we think about the ripple effect of the direct experience of, oh, if I take responsibility for my actions, if I make an effort to try to understand how I hurt somebody without doing all the sort of classic things that our culture supports around being adversarial, being defensive, denying responsibility, or, you know, lashing out and trying to be, um, you know, retributive, trying to like retaliate. When we learn that those things don't, they're not the only way to be, and that we actually have skills and tools to choose a different route, I think, I mean, that affects every person differently. And I trust that it has incredible lasting impact in all relationships and our, you know, our human experience is relational. Wow. Yeah, man, good work. I have to ask, like, and I don't think I even know the answer to this, but how did you get into this work? <laughs> It's a long, beautiful story. <laughs> Good. We're here to listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, in undergrad, I was so excited about learning Spanish and getting to live abroad. So during my undergrad studies, I went abroad for two different semesters, one to Santiago, Chile, and another one to Oaxaca, Mexico. So I accomplished my goal of becoming bilingual. And in the process, I realized that what I was really passionate about um, was my role in trying to create a more just world. You know, the, the social 
and historical and economic inequity and injustices, especially that have sort of unfolded between the United States and most countries in Latin America. Um, it was very eye-opening for me to learn about. I grew up very sheltered and very privileged. And so it was this huge wake up call for me to see what was going on in the world. Mm. So I decided at that time, you know, I was um, a studio art major and I loved making art. And I recognized that my path in terms of career was probably going to go more in this direction of how I can make a difference in the world in terms of social justice. and. At that time, you know, social justice wasn't so much of a sort of charged term as it is right now. Yeah. Following undergrad, I worked on the U.S.-Mexico border. I was uh, <laughs> also <Isn't it> crazy. <laughs> I I do have to say that I along my path, things have just come. You know, I think my intention to be um, in integrity with my beliefs and my values and not to compromise on that has allowed me to attract in these opportunities and to take risks. You know, when I told my friends and family that I was gonna go spend the summer in Tijuana, they were like, no, you're not. (laughs) My dad was like, "Uh uh-uh. And I, I, you know, I was like, well, you know, I know this other person who's done this program and I think it's going to be okay. I ended up first volunteering and then leading the organization that worked in Tijuana and the Baja Peninsula for five years. So for five years time, I would spend part of every year um, leading, coordinating this. It was a service-based learning, uh, like service learning type experience for students from the US and Canada to come down to the border region, do a service project in communities. But really the focus for me was bringing people together in community Mm -hmm. to build relationships, to learn about and from and with each other directly. To challenge all of those biases and stereotypes that we all have about each other, especially around border issues, you know, who who's crossing the border, why they're crossing the border, what are they leaving, why are they leaving, um, those pieces, I felt like, oh, this is something, this is a way that I can make a difference, both uh, in this realm of Latin American culture and also um, for the understanding and consciousness and compassion of people in the United States, um, because we know we have, you know, many, many people immigrating to our country from all over the world, and especially from Latin American countries. So I facilitated that program as the executive director there for several years, and then just kind of had this moment where I realized, you know, what I really love about this work is the facilitation of cross-cultural relationship building you know, how to help people move past their limited ideas and understanding of self and other and the world. So I thought I should learn more about this. And so I um, decided to get my master's degree in international peace and conflict studies. Wow. 
So that's when I moved. I started a program in Spain. It wasn't quite a great match for me. So I transferred to the program in Austria, which was very hands-on, practical. And honestly, that's where that piece of I'm responsible to do my own internal work first Mm. before I even think that I'm going to be useful or valuable in trying to go and assist others in identifying what they want for their lives and their community and their world, especially when it comes to injustice and crime and conflict. So that program, that master's program was very focused on that. If you want to go be, you know, this wonderful, idealistic humanitarian, um, have you worked on yourself first? And so I, I, that really resonated for me. Um, We did a lot of uh, breath work and things like dance and conflict transformation practices as part of our studies there. So I I did my three years um, of study and interning in Europe and then landed here in beautiful Colorado, which is such a blessing because I got to meet you (laughs) and land in a community where I discovered that um, there is this interesting nonprofit doing restorative justice so close by. Um, I also started uh, my own embodied practice with Qigong at that time because of a teacher that I met who's still my teacher. That was eight years ago. And so that that led me, you know, I, I so I'll just mention one more thing. What what really appealed to me in my master's work was this concept of conflict transformation, which is in one way defined by um contrasting it to conflict resolution, where conflict resolution conceptually is about conflict is a problem that's out there that I, as a mediator, can go in and help people solve so that we sort of fix the problem and it goes away. (laughs) By contrast, conflict resolution, excuse me, conflict transformation suggests that conflict is a natural phenomenon that's always going to be around And when we approach it with certain attitudes and curiosity and awareness, it can actually serve as a platform for new growth, new perspectives, and the possibility that all participants will be transformed Mm. by having come together to work through the conflict and will emerge with new ways of knowing and seeing and understanding. So I was like, Yes, I love the beauty of that um, because it, you know, it really resonates for me in my life. And so when I discovered restorative justice here in Longmont, I was like, oh my gosh, here it is. This is conflict transformation that's working right alongside the system, working Mm. alongside law enforcement, alongside the criminal justice system. So here's, you know, here's my opportunity to not only be impactful with my work with individuals, but also influence the systems that are operating with a lot of power in our world. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Can I ask, I'm going to ask you a question um, and I'm going to just try to figure out how to say this. What's your experience been with, because it, it, I know, I know you talk a lot about being involved with law enforcement, but since kind of all this 
<clears throat> all the stuff against law enforcement has come down the pipe. How is that affecting what you're doing and what's your experience with that? Yeah, that's, thanks for asking. Um, it's been tenuous. So our organization identifies as a social justice organization and by and large people working in social justice um, have picked up an anti-police narrative, uh, which is not something that um, is true for our experience and it doesn't align with our way uh, at, at, at my organization, I'm talking about our staff and board and volunteers, um, we have chosen to be very forward with this concept, like we are a humanistic organization, which means that we value every human's experience mm. beyond I mean, we, we want to understand, we are not trying to group everybody together. We're trying to just see, you know, these questions around equity and diversity by valuing each person's, each individual person's experiences, values, opinions, et cetera, and not diminishing or minimizing people based on whether it be, you know, identity according to gender, race, culture, or profession. So while we acknowledge that the institution of policing is not perfect and has certainly caused irreparable harm historically up until today, we also think that the voices of those individuals involved in the institution of policing need to be involved in the creation of the solutions. Yeah. The idea of it's us versus them it is completely against all of the things that we know to be true from the work in restorative justice. We do not experience change and growth and transformation when we dig our heels into divisiveness and you're like that and I'm like this. Right. I can't say that we have, you know, not we don't live in a perfect community where everything's, you know, peaches and roses in Longmont. And I would say, I think that we have a lot of promise here. We have had a lot of promise here because police have been involved in activities such as restorative justice that actually bring them closer to the community. In that restorative justice process, every person's biases and assumptions about every other person get challenged. So we don't say that, you know, we don't say welcome to restorative justice, get ready for your biases to be challenged, you know, which is one of those sort of shortcomings of the focus right now on like, well, everyone needs training. Mm. I'm not against training, but how do we actually internalize and utilize that awareness other than actually talking with each other? and listening to each other. Yeah. That's where I think the true change can happen. And I think we have to really fight all of the, out, the external pressure that we're subject to, that we have to sort of continue on this adversarial um, path that limits our ability to speak and listen with respect. Yeah, mm. You're, yeah, thank you for that. That's, it's an important, 
vision. And I, and I know you're not the only one out there with it. You know, I think there's a lot of division going on, but there's also a lot of people who are coming together as you are bringing people together. And, you know, Roger, my partner, you know, he's doing the same exact thing. And um, again, you know, he too is not saying that it's a perfect system by any means, definitely reform needs to happen. And I believe he has said too, to you that, uh, yeah, need, the reform has to come from within. And then that's, you know, that's, I think, really um, a potent, potent thing to really grasp, you know, and you got that early on in your studies because they were like, wow, if you're going to make change, change comes from within and you got to make that change within yourself. And I know I would, I would love to know, like, what are your personal practices to ensure that you're doing that on a day-to-day basis? You know, I have, I have this program called the ultimate functional health program. And, and, and there's a, there's a library of videos. And in one of those videos I recently posted is about living with intention. And, and, you know, often I, when I have a patient, I'll, I'll ask them pretty much every session. I'm like, okay, so what's your intention for this week? And, and I can't put a number or percentage on it, but a lot of the time people are like, oh, hmm, let me think about that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? How are you thinking about that? You don't already know that before you come to this session, (laughs) what you want to work on? Like, why are you here? Right. But it's because I've been doing this for a very long time. You know, I've been practicing what it means to live intentionally. And I try on a day-to-day basis to make it part of my setting my intentions for the morning. How is my day going to unfold? What are my conversations going to unfold to? What are my patient? How am I going to show up in the best way possible for my patients? And how am I going to live the most purposeful life? But I know that didn't happen overnight. I didn't just wake up here, you know? Um, but I, I would just love to know what your, what your practices are and what you do for yourself on a day-to-day basis as an intentional being. I love, I love hearing that perspective because I, when I come to you for healing work, I'm like, okay, here's my things. (laughs) This is what I think I'm doing. This is what I need help with. This is where I'm stuck. Um, So yeah, it, it is, I think the um, intentionality is, is so fundamental uh, and I, I will say just briefly that so much of what we do when we meet with offenders and victims, we don't actually use the word intention with them. Mm. But so much of what we do is just validating their experience. Mm. And then as needed, helping them move towards whatever is needed to be open to, to meeting the other so whatever ideas they have about that person's like that, um, we really gently work with a lot of questions and reflections, reframing to help them move towards, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I, I will be able to see this person in a different light, um, which is really kind of just based on curiosity and respect, which are great intentions to hold mm. in this life. Yeah. So I, I will say uh, that I am imperfect and evolving in my own ability to stay centered with my own intentions. I definitely struggle with getting caught up in busyness and productivity and Mm. trying to do it all and do it all looking nice and you know all those things that we do (laughs) I um I do I would say there's two main things I I do have some practices that I do on my own 
um, sensual embodied dance is a, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is a huge one for me where I can tap into all of those, you know, whether you want to think of them as like negative emotions or shadows or all of those things that I, as a woman out in the world, may try to sort of push aside um, pride, arrogance, uh, sort of like challenge, nature, anger, grief, those mm. things that like, hmm, I don't think those fit into who I need to appear to be in the world. I can explore those in a healthy, safe, rich way through dance. Mm -hmm. And the power in that is immeasurable, invaluable. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's constantly alive for me. So I, I mean, that's one that in the last two years um, has become really important and central. Uh, it also helps me just become aware of what I'm carrying in my body so that when I'm going about my day to day, I can be gentle and understanding with myself. I recently mm -hmm. had an experience where I lost somebody, you know, you know about this, but someone very close to my family and had one of the most profound and impactful experiences of grief that I've ever been through. It was a suicide. It was obviously sudden. It was unexpected. And instead of my classic pattern of just, whoop, just put that in this container over here and forge onward, I think that the, the skills and awareness that I've cultivated, especially through dance, um, help me stay present with my grief and mm. attend to it and feel it and learn from it and cry and sob and weep when needed yeah, and break through those um, ingrained patterns that I have that, you know, I, I've thought for so long that like, well, sadness, it's not helpful. Right. <laughs> How can I make that go away? Uh, also really important in my embodied practice is Qigong, which is a movement meditation form. And that is something that I've been doing for eight years. And so in some ways, it's just kind of always present in my system, the way that I relate to my own breath, um, the way that I relate to emotions and how I can sort of utilize them um, in uh like transforming them into sources of energy, mm. chi. Mm. And then I'll say also, I'm very, very uh, open and um, eager to ask for help. <laughs> so I ask you for help. I come, you know, I have, I go to healing sessions with you and I would say there's, you know, three other practitioners that I see regularly for mind, body, spirit, um, all different types of interventions and modalities, because it's hard to do it all on your own. You can't. <laughs> yeah, there's no doing it on your own. Good luck with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. It's beautiful. And, and I remember, um, <clears throat> I remember going to my first sensual dance class and I got out of that class and I, you were the first person I called. I was like, Hey, you need to make it over here. 
<laughs> it was so great. I can remember that call because I was like, ooh, Brandy says I should do this thing. I am going as soon as possible. It was like the bat signal, like the, the divine feminine bat signal went out into the sky that night and my life was changed forever. Yeah. It's such a great practice. I, you know, I, what I, you were just talking about that and it kind of landed in a specific way for me. Cause you were talking about the different, um, shadows or whatever it is you're exploring, like if it's grief or challenge and those kinds of things. And then the, the essence of that whole practice is about finding pleasure. So how can you be in your grief and find pleasure? Like, it doesn't even seem like it could be possible, but when you have the guidance of those beautiful women helping you move into that place, then it just makes, it makes it, it makes it capable it makes us capable of holding the emotions that we're so scared of, or we want to put away into a box or shelve or forget that are there or not even acknowledge. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. It's in community. I want to just mention that dance practice is, is I think deepened by the fact that it's, it's very intentional about how there's a community, um, the, the community of women who are present are invited in to support each other's experience, mm. which just transcends so many of those classic things that we think women do with each other, whether it's, you know, judgment, competition. Uh, I, I don't know, all those, all those things that kind mm. of come up in our world, the community that's uh, facilitated and cultivated in that dance space shows us, gives us a direct experience that women actually are so important to each other in creating the, the, the health and well-being and full vibrant experience of the, the woman experience, the, the woman's life. Yeah. 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 The community is a big part of it. It's, it's really beautiful. And ladies, I'll, I'll um, I'll put a link to our studio in case you are in the Boulder area. I'll also put a link to S Factor, which is the national model. So maybe there's a class in your area that you would like to explore. Um, and even if you don't feel called to go to Centrally Embodied Dance, you know, just find something. You know, one of my one of my go tos for my patients who are especially not into that uh, is uh, somatic therapy, which is a, a therapeutic way. You're you're with one person and they help you open while you're in the, in the motion, in the emotion. So if you're going into a ther therapy session, if you will, with grief or sadness or depression, maybe they help you create more openness in your body through that emotion. So there is a lot of similarities to these to that. So if you're kind of want more of a one-on-one -on -one thing, you can do that too. Awesome. This is so beautiful. And then real quickly, I would love for you to tell us about your book because she's a published author. <laughs> Thank you. I'll just, you know, I always keep it close, close by. <laughs> so um, in March 2020, I uh, published the little book of restorative teaching tools. I co-authored um, with two friends and colleagues, Lindsay Pointer and Haley Farah, who both at one time worked with me at Longmont Community Justice Partnership. And um, the focus of this book is how uh, direct experience through games and activities can help cultivate and facilitate the skills needed for communication in a restorative environment. So 
it's it's geared towards people who want to teach and train others to be working in restorative justice or restorative practices, but truly these skills are applicable for anyone who wants to be doing, you know, these very foundational things like how to ask a really good open-ended question, how to think outside the box when we're trying to brainstorm new ideas together, how to understand what a punitive response looks like versus a more restorative response. Mm. Um, so the book is full of very practical instructions for a bunch of different games and activities that could really be uh, delivered with any group, um, whether it's adults or teenage uh, youth. Um, it's, it's all based on this idea that people will learn and internalize new skills better when they're enjoying the learning process. Okay. So in, instead of something like this lecture model uh, in our conventional education system, um, this we go we try to break down uh, that expectation that that is sort of the way to learn and say instead, teachers and learners need to have experiences together and be in the learning experience um, simultaneously in a collaborative way. Awesome, awesome. That's so beautiful. And then we'll put a link to that so people could go to restorativeteachingtools.com and buy your book. I would love that. And I would okay. love any feedback if people buy it and try any of the material in there. Lindsay and I actually are developing a new game every month since March, which is are all available for free on the website. So oh. one of the ways that we're developing those games is based on the needs in the needs that we learn of that we have needs that we're trying to teach and train around because we're both doing the work and we're very curious about who else is having what experience with whatever learning community they're working in and we would love to hear you know what went well or what people need more of um in in the scope of it's really peace building at the heart of it mm, i love that that's beautiful. And then also, ladies, if you're interested in learning more about restorative justice and getting involved, you can visit lcjp.org. I'll put that. Um, I'll put that link on the show notes as well. And there are virtual monthly restorative practice orientations that are going on. So if you just like to kind of jump in on one of those, you can access that, that there as well. Um, yeah, awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? Well... That's a great question. I guess, you know, thinking about what, what I am guessing um, might be attracting listeners and, and your audience and network, um, I would just like to mention that at this time when I think we have a lot of uh, external pressures, a lot of um, kind of sources of stress, in, in our world and, and things that are working against hope, <laughs> essentially, if I can simplify it down to that, um, I would just like to invite the, the listeners and the women that you're connecting with to reach out even to one person in their lives to invite a conversation um, and to bring curiosity about what 
what's going on for you as you, as an individual. I think there are so many seeds of hope that lie in our shared experiences that can be very important for resilience at mm-hmm. any time and especially right now. And the, the power of sort of fertilizing, caring for those seeds that comes from women together in relationship. I think that, you know, that holds so much potential for change. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it can't, it can't be stated enough. And, and I just, um, I think we all have a, a, a little hurt on our hearts, whether it's because of the injustice we see in the community in communities or because of the pandemic and those conditions. Uh, and I, I just would really invite people to find one person to connect with and um, to, to have trust in that connection. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. You know, I mean, you're one of my greatest friends and it's so wonderful to have you in my life because we, these are the conversations we just naturally have, you know, so I feel like I don't even think about that as a need because I don't need it because we have our, we have our rainbows (laughs) and and it's so bright and beautiful in here. Um, And what I'm noticing when you're saying that is, is my remembrance of how many people, especially women and men actually, that are telling me that either their community is falling apart or they're, uh, I have patients that are like, well, I'm so afraid to take this step because I feel like I'm going to lose all the people I love. And, you know, it's in, and, and obviously we're in a time of transformation and this is part of it. But what, what do you say to that when people are like in that place of don't feeling like they have someone to talk to in that way? Mm. You know, I, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, a tough call. I'm, I am so um, fortunate to get to work with so many people on a one-on-one basis. So it's hard for me to imagine one universal statement in response to that, other than um, what, what we may think of as isolation from others may be partly caused by our own perspective and lens and the barriers that we've created. Mm-hmm. So if, and, and I guess, you know, I want to just, I, I know I was focused on women and, and I'm hearing you speak to the experience of men. And so if there are, are men listening, I, I just want you know, and non-binary and trans people, this is this yeah. definitely not meant to be um, gender specific, Uh, And so that kind of also broadens the invitation that um, even if it's somebody that uh, there's someone that you haven't spoken to in a long, long time, I I just, I've kind of come back to what I shared about my work, where we start imagining all of these things about others uh, because we're distant from each other. And so often what I see in conflict, especially is if we can take one step closer, it actually dissolves so many of those beliefs or assumptions we've made that keep us apart. And so I think, you know, I'm not asking everyone to reach out to the person they're in conflict with, um, but, but knowing that there's somebody out there who's probably also feeling isolated and that just one one touch, one question, one inquiry with curiosity 
mm-hmm. can really help dissolve those boundaries. And the, the, like I said, the resilience found in that connection can make such a big difference. Um, it's, it's impossible to even know what might happen. Yeah, so true. Because it's a ripple effect, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, I think that's like the biggest thing for people in the healing industry is, you know, the people I talk to is like, wow, I feel kind of small because I'm just doing this little thing over here. But the reality is the outreach of that is exponential because it goes out and it goes out and it goes out. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I believe that we all have that regardless if you're in the healing industry or not. So women, you know, if you're a mother, that makes a difference how you show up and how you choose to do your self-care and how you become a leader for those kids and the family you lead. Or if you're an entrepreneur, you know, how are you, what's your vision? What's your intention? How do you want to show up for yourself and how are you going to care for yourself so you can uphold that? And how are you going to reach out to yourself to support yourself? And be open to asking for, for help from, from other people, you know, that like you were just saying, you go to multiple practitioners. Well, if you're feeling like you're alone out there, you don't have to, you can go to a practitioner, right? Go to a therapist, go to a yoga class, go get a personal training somewhere. You know, I mean, it's, it's, there's access to people. We just have to open, open ourselves to it and decide what it is we really want for our lives. So thank you so much. You're welcome so much. It's such an honor and privilege to be part of your community in so many different ways. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share more about my story and my work with, with your network. Yes. Well, it's my pleasure to share your story because the more justice, social justice we can have and reform we can have and transformation we can have, the better all of our lives are on this planet. So I'm doing my work here. (laughs) Thank you for being a part of that. Oh, you're welcome. Awesome. We'll see ya. Thank you for listening to the ultimate biohack for women. If you'd like to dive deeper with our tribe, join us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you'd like to help grow our tribe, share this episode with your friends. Let's bring this light to our community so that other women can know their true power and we can create a tribe together worth being in. This podcast is for information purposes only. Dr. Brandy Victory is not a medical doctor and the views and statements expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Dr. Brandy Victory and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.